Hey, let me say one thing quick about uh, Darren, Jeff, our teaching team. I really appreciate the fact that they do not shy away from hard passages. If you were here for the Genesis series, my goodness, those are some of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible, and yet we tackle these head on. So, if you were here last week, you know Paul is not afraid to critique. He absolutely says you're saved by grace, you're loved by God, you're secure, but at the same time, he has expectations for the church. In chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he hears that there's sexual immorality happening, particularly incest, and he's quite serious that that needs to be dealt with, and even talks about handing people over to Satan. My goodness. After last week's sermon, I thought Darren did a wonderful job. I walked up to him, gave him a hug, and said, thank you for giving me six and not chapter five, (laughs) turning people over to Satan. Uh, Now, obviously, six is packed. We can't cover all of it. There's just no way we can do justice to it. So I want to talk a little bit about Paul's style of writing not just the content. If you read the Apostle Paul, you see there's certain patterns that he likes to fall into. So we're actually going to look at the pattern and then some of his famous illustrations, which is obviously what are Christians' relationship to the courts like. Uh, But let me start this way. I'm a professor at Biola University. That's my major ministry. But I also have ministries outside of Biola. I love the fact that our university says... Our faculty just don't teach. They're constantly outside of the classroom doing ministry. So let me show you an interesting picture. Um, My wife and I are part of something called the Graceful Warrior Project. Uh, Goes around to different parts of the world where women are in danger and we teach them self-defense. This is me in a Maasai village where women are often married at age 9, 10, are not formally educated. Uh, They're like one of six or seven Um, wives to one man. They're regularly beaten. So I went there and taught verbal de-escalation skills and self-defense. I've studied uh, Kung Fu for seven years, and now I'm doing something called Krav Maga, which is Israeli self-defense. Kung Fu is very complicated, takes a lot of practice. And so I teach at uh, domestic violence shelters here in Orange County with Donna Maraz, a dear friend of mine, uh, who's at OC United. We have a connection with OC United. So I teach women, and they need something very simple. Krav Maga can be boiled down to one simple principle. When in danger, kick to the hot spot. There you go. That is Krav Maga 101. So I was in a Krav Maga school, and it was a great school. I learned a ton. But I kind of felt like I needed a new perspective. So I went to a different Kramagosko. And at that point, I was a blue belt. Kramaga, white, yellow, orange, green, blue, brown, black. So I was actually fairly up in the Kramaga system, two away from black. So I come into this new school and I say, hey, I'm, I'm a blue belt. So I don't know how you handle it at this school. Like, like, what do you do? And he goes, oh, here's what we'll do. Just work out with us for a month. I'll watch you. And there's certain things I think I should see in a blue belt. There's just certain things a blue belt should know. And I'll see if you know those and if you're actually doing it in what they call fight class. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul's doing. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, Some of you are saying you're blue belts. I want to know if I see it. 
like some of you are saying, I'm at this level in Christianity, fine. I don't care what you say, I only care what you do. So I'm going to watch you, church at Corinth, and then I'm going to offer my commentary of where I think you are in your faith, if that makes sense. Right? Now, Paul's not afraid to do that. Like, we might be uncomfortable with that, but Paul was not uncomfortable in saying, I need to assess you of where you're at in your faith. See, there's a very interesting pattern in Paul's writing. He first gives us a biblical truth, and then he says, based on that truth, there's just certain things I would expect to see from you. Darren started off this whole series on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he started it this way. Let's go to the first slide. He said this in the very first chapter, third verse, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So guess what? You're the church of God. You're all saints. If that is true, I would expect to see some things. Very next verse. Here we go. Next slide. Thank you. Now, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. If you are the church of Christ, and if you are sanctified, I would not expect to see divisions. I don't expect to see that with blue belts. I expect to see a certain kind of unity. Now, notice what he's not saying. There will always be disagreements among Christians. We can disagree politically. We can disagree even theologically a little bit within reason, right? At Biola University, Bible Institute of Los Angeles, where I teach, you can have certain theological beliefs, but you have to be within our doctrinal statement which we believe is classic evangelicalism, right? So Paul isn't saying you all need to be unified in all your secondary beliefs. You need to be unified in your primary beliefs. I'm the co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project at Biola University, where we seek to reintroduce compassion, understanding, civility back into our disagreements. My goodness, just after the midterms, let me just say business is good right? Uh, We are not doing well inside and outside the church. Paul says, listen, you are the church of Christ. I expect to see that there's not divisions. If there are, that kind of tells me what belt level you are in your faith. Next slide. Now, this is our passage, right? The key part of the passage to me are the last two verses where, again, Paul's going to set up, this is what I think ought to be true about you, and this ought to motivate you to do the really hard things he's just talked about in the passage. So look at this passage. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body? Notice two important truths. He's saying, one, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God took up residence in you when you accepted Christ as your Savior. And second, you were bought with a great price. If those two things are true and they motivate you, I would expect to see a couple things. Look what he says. Next. He says, you should not treat yourself as if you're your own and you should glorify God in your body. But notice, this is the key part of the entire passage. Paul is trying to motivate us. He's about to give some really hard instructions to the church at Corinth, particularly to blue belts. 
And he knows they're going to need certain kind of motivation. Paul gives us two powerful forms of motivation. One, you have been bought with a price. Uh, Next slide. John goes into detail of what this looks like. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We turned our back on God. The world is in rebellion against God. God could have had the attitude towards planet Earth. Well, you want to run the world? You want to be in rebellion? Fine. Go at it. I'm done with you guys. The creature rebels against the creator? Fine. Work it out among yourselves. I'm not helping any of you. But that is not what God did. In his righteous anger... God took that anger and he placed it not upon you. He, he placed it on Jesus Christ. He cared enough for you that he took that righteous anger and placed it upon Jesus. And it absolutely killed Jesus. Remember when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason God turned his back on Jesus, he assumed the sin of the entire world. Past, present, future. Remember Gethsemane? Jesus prays, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. The cup in the Old Testament always represents God's wrath, God's anger. That's how much God cares about you. See, we need to understand, and maybe we're sheltered just a little bit here in the United States. The world's in bad shape. Like the world is not getting better. It is getting worse. And we actually have the metrics by which to measure that, right? So uh, next slide. So there are more slaves today. This comes from Amnesty International. There are more slaves today than at any point in human history. Particularly women, particularly children, work in subhuman conditions, right? And by the way, let me just say a parenthetical comment. Some of the things we enjoy in the United States are absolutely being produced by slave labor. Maybe we need to do a little bit of research this Christmas to find out where exactly are these products coming from. And maybe we need to hold corporations accountable for the type of labor that is produced in certain kind of products. Maybe just a little bit of research uh, this Christmas because children are working in subhuman conditions. Right? God sees that, and one, he has compassion for these women and children and men, but he has righteous anger. Righteous anger towards people that are enslaving other human beings. God is angry about that. Uh, women, if you go back to the New Testament and you ask James, what is true religion in the sight of God? James gives a radical answer. He says, true religion in the sight of God is caring for orphans and widows in their distress. God always cares about women. When I was at UNC Chapel Hill, one of the top graduate programs in my discipline, communication theory, it's also one of the top feminist theory um, universities in the entire world. I love to say to them, God deeply cares about the plight of women. And James would go so far as to say true religion cares for women in their distress. Right? So God watches how women are treated today. He knows every single woman in that Maasai village. Every time that woman is beaten, every time that woman is degraded, God sees it. He knows it. Remember what Jesus said, the hairs on your head are numbered by God. He knows what's happening towards women. Uh, A married couple, Ernst and Dupai, they're the first married couple to win the Pulitzer. They did a whole series for the Washington Post on the plight of women in the world. Ladies, you're at more danger in the world today than ever before. Women are at more danger, and God knows that. He's angry that women made in his image are in danger. And then lastly, the Ukraine is heartbreaking. 
It's heartbreaking what's happening. Right now, the Ukrainians are fighting bravely, but it, it is a bloodbath over there. And God sees war and he hates war. But we're a warlike people. Ever since we created tools to garden, we've used it to kill each other. That breaks God's heart and he is righteously angry. I mean, I, I don't want to give downers this morning, but in 1945, after World War II, Albert Einstein and scientists from the University of Chicago who helped create the bomb were so concerned with the devastation that they saw a bomb being used, right, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they created the doomsday clock. The doomsday clock predicts the apocalypse of the human race, right? If it gets to midnight, it's the end of humanity as we know it. Now, they just reset this clock last month. Do you know, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest the United States and Soviet Union ever claimed to actually launching missiles at each other, it was seven minutes to midnight. Do you know what they just set it to last month? 100 seconds to midnight. Based on things like the Ukrainian war, based on things like climate change, based on things like a pandemic, we are one seconds to the eradication of the human race. And God is deeply concerned and he is righteously angry what we've done to his planet. So now what does God do with that anger? Does he just say, oh, forget about it. Humans will be humans. No, he wouldn't be righteous if he did that. So he takes all that anger and he puts it right onto Jesus Christ. He thought you were worth it to do that, to watch his son die because he wanted you to come into the family. See, we need to embrace that. We need to own that. Paul is not afraid to own that in Galatians. Remember what he says? I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And he died for me. Each one of us needs to say God loves me enough that Jesus died for my sins. Paul says that ought to be motivation to live a hard life. Christian life. But then he gives a second one. Next slide. He says, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So here are two powerful motivations from the apostle Paul. One, God cared enough about you to have his son die in your place. And second, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are to esteem your body because it's the residence of the Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, Paul is saying, if that doesn't work for you, if that doesn't motivate you, you will never do the Christian life. It's way too difficult. And if that doesn't motivate you, it doesn't motivate you. Make sense? So we need to ask really hard questions. Does that motivate me to give up some of my rights in the Christian life? Does it motivate me to make really hard decisions and give up certain things in order to pursue Jesus' kingdom, not my kingdom? Now, if you're sitting here thinking, I don't like this. Like, I don't like being, I, I, I thought I was under grace, right? I, I, I thought God loves me no matter what. And now we're talking about being judged and assessed. Well, Paul's not afraid to do that. And remember, he's the king of grace. Paul writes about grace all the time. So listen, let me just say this. You are under grace. For by grace you have been saved, he wrote to the church at Ephesus. But let's not make it cheap grace. See, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Who said cheap grace is, well, since I'm under grace and God loves me, I don't need to do any of the hard work of the church. I don't need to love my neighbor. I don't need to consider others more important than myself. 
Paul would say and Bonhoeffer would say, no, you've just cheapened grace. Grace means, so I, 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 um, I did a Bible study for years with the Brea Olinda basketball team. I know when you look at me, you think basketball immediately. Um, but my kids played basketball at Brea Olinda. So they let me do a team Bible study, which was kind of remarkable. Uh, and I would sit there and I, I taught about grace. I'm a huge grace advocate. And I remember one player turned to me and said, well, Mr. Mielhoff, if I get this right, if I'm under grace, I can do whatever I want to do. And I said, well, yes, I think you're getting it. Paul wrote about that. Yes. But is that how you say thank you to God? By going off and doing whatever you want to? Is that a good way to say thank you? He said, well, probably not. No. Take that grace and make it into devotion to Jesus Christ. So take a look at Paul, how he, how he kind of assesses us. Next slide. Oh, yeah, yeah. So are we blue belts? That's the question I want to ask this morning. Are we blue belts? Some of you think you're a blue belt because of how long you've been a Christian. Does that make sense? Um, I've been a Christian since age 13. Well, I would think I'm a blue belt. Well, guess what? My instructor at the new school said, it doesn't matter how long you've been studying Cromagall. I just expect to see some things on the mat that a blue belt does. So it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Paul says there's certain attributes about you I expect to see from my blue belts and I'm about to assess you. Next slide. Because notice how Paul likes to assess. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. Hey, when you first become a Christian, it's okay not to know anything. I grew up in a non-Christian house. I honestly knew nothing about the Bible. Totally true story. Uh, my grandparents were Christians, and every Christmas bought us a Bible. They got us a Christmas present, but gave us a Bible. And my parents were always like, hey, just say thank you for the Bible, and then enjoy the present. I'm like, okay. So I finally got like my fifth Bible. I'm just going to open this thing up and read it. I'd never read the Bible before. I just happened to open it, New Testament, Sermon on the Mount. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. And I was like, nope, we're done. (laughs) What in the world was that? So when you're young in the faith, Paul says, it's totally okay for you not to know anything. You're infants. But Church of Corinth, you guys should be farther along than what you are right now. I couldn't give you meat. I had to give you milk. And that's not right. Second, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, by the way, you're all going to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ as believers. The white throne judgment is where he judges all of humanity. The judgment seat is where he judges Christians. And let me tell you, I say this to my Bible students all the time. I think God grades on a curve. I think he absolutely grades on a curve. I say to my Bible students, you are in an elite, private Christian university you're going to be graded harder. I think God, when you come to the judgment seat of Christ, I think Christ is going to say, hey, listen, obviously you're my child. Obviously my love for you isn't up for grabs, right? I love you no matter what. But let's just talk about your life for a second. Biola students, you're all Bible minors. At Biola University, you pick your major, we pick your minor, and the minor is Bible, right? And you get some of the top Christian Professors in the world teach at Biola University. 
So Biola students, I just expect you to know more. And if you know more, I expected you to do more. And my students were like, holy cow. And then I say to them, hey, the only thing worse than being a Biola student is being a Biola professor. I'm dead I'm dead serious. Can you imagine coming up in front of Jesus? And Jesus is going to say, Tim Yohoff, uh, you're a professor at Biola University for 18 years. Right? You speak at marriage conferences. We're going to go next weekend. We're going to go speak at a marriage conference, family life marriage conferences. We've been doing that for 30 years, speaking at these conferences. One time I was so convicted. My wife often speaks with me, but sometimes she just listens to me, like for a whole weekend, talk on marriage. One time I walked out of the conference. I took her hand and I said, I'm really sorry. I do like half of everything. I just sat up there and Noreen said, half? (laughs) Tim, you ought to be a blue belt. I think Jesus is going to say that. You ought to be a blue belt. Right? Right? Now, let's see if you're a blue belt. Right? Now, Paul gets into his illustrations. And sometimes we get fixated on the illustration. We miss his point. But now, Paul's going to speak to the blue belts. Okay? He's actually going to speak to the white, yellow, orange, green. But he's really going to speak to the blue belts. Okay, here we go. Ready to be utterly convicted? Too late. You're already here. All right, next. This is convicting to me as well. Now he says this. When any of you has a grievance against another, do you dare to take it to the court before the unrighteous? Instead of taking it before the saints, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels to say nothing of ordinary matters? Okay, very quickly. We're not going to do Christian Law 101. This is a controversial passage. Theologians generally agree what Paul's trying to say based on two phrases. Please notice trivial cases and ordinary matters. Paul is not talking about criminal cases. Rome would never give Gentiles nor Jews the power to settle a criminal case. That's what Roman courts are for. Make sense? Uh, Romans 13, God instituted the state to curb evil. What Rome said to Jews and Gentiles is, I will let you judge trivial cases. I'll let you do ordinary cases, not criminal cases. Now, most likely what the Romans are talking about would be what we call civil cases. Okay, small claims court is what most theologians agree Paul's talking about. He's not talking about criminal cases. So now Paul is saying, these trivial matters, you who've been bought by Christ, you who are a temple of the Holy Spirit, you're going in front of unrighteous Gentiles and suing each other? No way. No way should you be doing that. Is there no one in the church that can help you resolve this dispute? Next. Go ahead. Uh, Can it be that there is not one person wise enough to decide between brothers and sisters. So if there's, a, if there's a conflict between two people within our church, there's got to be people that you go to that can help resolve this. Now, for sure, that's going to be the elders. For sure, that's going to be Darren and the shepherd team. But Paul's point is so much more basic. Here's what I love what Darren said last week. Darren said, this isn't the church just for the elders, nor 
For Darren, it's our church. So we should help each other resolve issues. Remember when he writes to the church at Philippi, Paul? He mentions Iodia and Syntyche, two female leaders, and Paul has learned there's a conflict between them. Then he says, my true companion, help them. My true companion is not one person, it's the church at Philippi. Paul is saying, church at Philippi, help these two women who are in a disagreement, resolve the disagreement. Paul is saying the exact same thing to the church at Corinth. You have a legal dispute. Come on, before we drag Jesus into the courts, because you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, resolve this. Do not sully Jesus' reputation. Don't go uh, civil cases, small claims court, do not bring that in before unrighteous Gentile judges. Now, let's just be honest. If it's a criminal case in the United States, we're not allowed to adjudicate that, right? If there's a criminal case at EV Free Fullerton, the state of California is saying, no, 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 that needs to go to the courts because that's a criminal case, right? Paul's talking about ordinary cases and we're selling each other. Okay, now at this point, I think Paul's talking to the yellow, orange, green belts, Now he shifts to the blue belts and says something fairly radical. This is what he says. In fact, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Men and women, we're supposed to be unified. We're supposed to be pursuing the cause of Christ and you all are taking each other to court? No, 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 no. We need to resolve this in the body in our church. But now he talks to the blue belts. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Hypothetical situation. You are having a conflict with a fellow church member. Uh, It's a small claims court and you are 100% right. You are 100% right. That person is absolutely wrong and I will prove it in a court of law. I know I'm right. Paul says, okay, blue belts, give up your right. Don't take them to court. Yeah, but I'm right. Yeah, but you're going to sully the reputation of Jesus. No, excuse me, the Apostle Paul. You may be talking to Corinthians. Now you're talking to Americans. And we don't give up our rights. We exercise our legal rights. And I'm taking you to court. Paul says, oh, okay, I get it. You're not a blue belt. You're no, you're, maybe you're a yellow belt. That attitude is not a blue belt level. Right? Give up your right... Because Jesus' reputation is about to get sullied in the courts of California. And we need to have enough that we back away and say, man, I am 100% right. And I'm going to trust the fact that God might deal with this at the judgment seat of Christ with that person. And I'm just going to leave it right there. By the way, I think Paul's also saying, can we go back to the cross just for a second? Were you 100% guilty in front of God? Were you a sinful person? The answer is yes. And aren't you glad God had grace on you? Aren't you glad he didn't treat you the way you want to treat your brother? Aren't you glad that it was grace that got you off of God's judgment? Yikes. Next, let's get away from this. Next. Right, next slide. Now, let me just, I'll I'll leave this with Calvin, John Calvin. His institutes are brilliant. 
His commentaries are brilliant as well. He gives a quick interpretation of Romans, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 6. I think it's really good. He phrases it well. Uh, Calvin interprets 1 Corinthians 6 to mean that we should not bring lawsuits against brethren where another remedy is possible. Guys, let's bring it to the church. Or, I love what Darren says, this is your church. Work it out. You know a brother and a sister are about to go to court? Sit with them and say, guys, can we work this out? Let me talk to you. Do we not have legal lawyers here that we we can form a committee and you go and state your case in front of this committee of fellow believers? And honestly, are you going to accept their ruling? Are they going to say, we've listened to it? And I'll be honest with you, I think you're right. Or they might say, I think both of you are right. And I think a compromise is this. If they can't do it, that's why we have elders, right? Godly men who can sit down and uh, adjudicate this issue, but, but let me say this. Calvin makes this point. I think it's a really good one. He's not slamming the door on, on um, small claims court. Paul isn't. He's saying it ought to be really rare. So if there is a really rare situation where you just feel like, I think, I think we need to go to the courts on this. Paul's not slamming that door. He says it ought to be the exception, not the rule. And then he says, listen, uh, If the law of the land requires us to bring a matter before the courts, then you need to do it. And that is, in the United States, criminal cases are brought before the magistrate. Churches don't get to resolve uh, criminal cases and just say, oh, we'll work it out. No, 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 no. That belongs in the courts that God ordained in Romans chapter 13. All right, next. And I love, see, this is Paul's writing style. He knows he just rocked the boat. He knows he gave a really hard truth. So he's back to giving motivation. And Paul steps in and says, okay, I know you all need motivation right now because that was a really hard truth. Let me give you some motivation to do what God wants you to do. And he says this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. In other words, all your sins, past, present, future, you've been justified. They've been forgiven at the foot of the cross. Right? There is no condemnation, Paul writes in Romans. Right? All of that is done. You are forgiven. Past, present, future. And God's love doesn't rise and fall like the stock market. It is steady because his love is based on what Jesus did for you. Right? So I love that Paul gives us motivation right after a hard truth. Now he's about to go into another truth. Now, I'm choosing not to deal with his address of sexual sin. Now, uh, Darren did such a good job with five, chapter five, that I'm not just going to rehash it, but Paul makes a very simple point. Hey, when I say your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, I'm dead serious. So you have sex with a prostitute, you're bringing the Holy Spirit right into that sexual act because you can't eject the Holy Spirit from your body. So you go and have an illicit relationship with a prostitute, guess what? The Holy Spirit was involved in that because he's in your body. Do not do that. Do not take the Holy Spirit into these illicit kind of relationships. That's what Paul's saying. But now let me just say this real quick. It's easy to give yourself a pass at this moment, right? I I know myself. Well, I don't have sex with prostitutes. I'm okay. Oh, I'm good. I am a blue belt. Oh, you see, I am a blue belt. I don't have sex with prostitutes, and I don't look at porn on computers. I'm good. Paul says, no, let's have a broader principle to see if you're a blue belt. Okay, next. 
Paul says this, all things are permitted for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are permitted for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So Paul says, Jesus is Lord of your life. Nothing should control you. The only thing that should control you is the Holy Spirit. But now I love how the scriptures go right into the American context. Because men and women, we're dominated by a ton of things as Christians, right? I know I wrestle with these things. So let me do what I think maybe are the three biggest ones. This is just my personal opinion. Here we go. Next slide. First, if you take a look at that gentleman looking very cool and hip, um, to me, that's materialism, right? You, I feel good about myself if you look a certain way, right? If, if there's a certain brand of clothes, I feel good about myself. Um, in America, it's always bigger and better. I get a bigger house. Uh, I get a better job. Uh, I have a right to pursue the American dream. And Paul says, listen, it's okay to have a nice house. It's okay to want nice things, but does it dominate you? Is your self-esteem rooted in that? I got to have the best phone, the newest phone. I have to have the newest technology. I have to have this house and a vacation home. Um, I notice what my neighbors have and I want to trump that. That's materialism and welcome to... American Christianity, we struggle with materialism all the time. I mean, look at that gentleman. I must say, it's really weird to see myself with hair. <laughs> Next. Now, this is going to be stepping on some toes, and my car is literally on and running in the parking lot. Okay? Now, when I speak at Family Life Marriage Conferences, which we're about to do next weekend, when we talk about affairs at this conference, people always think romantic emotional, sexual affairs. For sure, that's a type of affair. For sure, that's legitimate, and Paul would condemn that. But an affair is anything that takes away from the priority of the marriage. That's how we define it in a family life. So if I had to say, what is the affair most American Christians are dealing with? It's not the sexual affair, it's the family affair. Right? We say, my self-esteem is rooted in the kids. If the kids are doing well, I feel good about myself. Um, uh, the purpose of this marriage is to raise the kids. By the way, that's when we see the divorce rate really hit us, right? The divorce in America either happens in the first three years of the marriage or it happens when the kids leave the house. Once the kids leave the house... The two adults look at each other and say, oh, we stopped loving each other a long time ago. Our purpose was to raise the kids, and now they're out of the house. Guess what? We're divorcing. No. God is saying the marriage relationship reflects the Trinity. So we know this from psychology, by the way. If you really want to raise productive kids, and I'm speaking as an educator, work on your marriage. If the kids see a healthy marriage, not a perfect marriage, a healthy marriage, they'll know how to adjust. If they believe they are the center of the marriage, that's what we call an inordinate power, and it is doing damage to these kids. Because those kids walk into my classroom, and they say, by the way, the universe revolves around me. I look at them and say, no, it revolves around me as the professor, right? So... Best thing you do for your kids, work on your marriage. Best thing you can do is see the kids see mom and dad working on the move. Now, obviously, I've never written a book on parenting. I've never been asked. 
But Dan Allender did. He's a friend of mine. And he said this. It was so interesting. His daughter, he's written books on marriage. His daughter pushed him on this one time. And his daughter said to him, okay, imagine the situation. You, me, and mom are in a boat. The boat capsizes. Who do you wrecks you first, me or mom? The great Dan Allender said this. Oh, let me be very clear. Not only would I get mom first, I would dry her off. (laughs) Kids need to know the purpose of this marriage is not raising kids. It's having a godly marriage and then, of course, passing that on to the kids. Of course, passing that on to the kids. Right Now, this is mine, resume. You're in academia. You're always comparing your resume to other people. You spoke at this conference. I didn't. You published this book and won an award. Mine didn't. Constantly looking at other people. And it dominates your thinking. I feel good about myself if I get a prof two. I feel good about myself if my book is reviewed in Christianity Today. I feel good about my... Right? Paul's saying you're being dominated by that. Don't be dominated by these things. Only thing that controls you is Jesus Christ. And you already know how he feels about you. He took the sins of the world upon himself and died because you were so important. So let me close by talking to two separate groups. I can imagine. Group one, you are blue belts. You are legit blue belts. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But hey, you've pursued God, right? You make time for prayer. You do pour over the scriptures. You memorize the scriptures. God's kingdom is important. Again, right now you're sitting there thinking, oh, I think it's arrogant to call myself a blue belt. No, no, no. Paul would say, I need my leaders to lead. You blue belts, I need you to be an example to everybody else. Paulie would say, even imitate my faith. We need our blue belts to be blue belts. But right now, Satan's talking to you saying, you're not a blue belt. Because you struggle with sin. Well, guess what? Let's hear from a legit black belt. The Apostle Paul, what does he say to the church at Rome? I struggle with sin. The very things I don't want to do, I do. It doesn't mean I'm not a black belt. So blue belts in this church, I implore you, be blue belts. Reach out to the rest of us. Be examples. Create Bible studies. Be part of Bible studies. Volunteer in this church. Be a model to the rest of us because this is what blue belts do. Make sense? Now, let's talk about to people who think you're blue belts. You're sitting there going, I don't care what that bald-headed dude says. I'm a blue belt. I'm a blue belt. I've been a Christian most of my life. I'm a blue belt. And if this church doesn't tell me I'm a blue belt, I'll go find another church that tells me I'm a blue belt. And Paul's saying, no. Be humble enough to receive instruction. Be humble enough to receive my rebuke because it's done out of love. Listen, I should be a blue belt. I've been a Christian since age 13. I teach at a Christian university. Uh, There's things in my life, it's just time to address them. Right? So a new year's coming. It's time for me to say, you know, it's time to do this. I think I'd get a hearty amen from my wife. She was in the first service, not here. Um, But there's just things I need to get at, right? So let me finish the rest of the story. So I go join this new school. I do that for a month. The instructor grabs me. He's a great guy. And he goes, hey, listen, it's really fun to have you at the school. You fit in really well. You got a great personality. I know you have a kung fu background. But I'm just going to be honest with you. 
I don't think you're a blue belt. Like, like blue belts a lot of jujitsu, and it just seems like your old school didn't do a lot of jujitsu. So, n- no bad. Your, your stand up is really good. I just would expect to see more from a blue belt. Now, at that point, I already knew I wasn't a blue belt. Why? I was sparring with a guy who was killing me. On the mat, he was killing me. And we finished. I said to him, hey, what belt are you? He goes, oh, I just became a green belt. One below blue. I looked at this dude and I was like, I am not. I might not be a green belt. That dude just killed me. So I said to the instructor, you know what? Uh, You're right. I'm not a blue belt. He goes, you know what? I really admire you saying that. I imagine that must be really hard. I said, you know, yeah, but you know what? It's kind of freeing. I'm here to learn and I want to learn. He said, well, I really appreciate that. So men and women, I pray this morning, the blue belts, I hope you feel the affirmation of the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt Satan's trying to whisper in your ear, you're not a blue belt. But you know what? Let the Holy Spirit speak to you. You are a blue belt, not perfect. We need you to lead. We need you to step into disagreements between people and offer godly counsel. We need to see your example in your marriages, your families, your evangelism, your giving, all of that. We just need leaders to step up and say, we're going to try to be an example, right? And then those of us... Maybe it's just time for us to take this new year and really examine where we're at, where we should be, where we're at. And you know what? God loves us. But it's time for us to really start acting like blue belts and to try to get to that level. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you. We are are thankful that you love us by grace. We're thankful that Jesus took upon the sins of the entire world. We do not take that lightly. We acknowledge that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And yet we acknowledge this Christian life is hard. Father, I look at my own life and I think there, there should be areas I should be farther along than what I am in certain areas. And that's not to beat myself up, but to humbly receive Paul's instruction and the conviction of the Spirit. Father, I pray for the blue belts. We're told to pray for our leaders. And I pray for these dear couples, individuals, singles, high school students that are clearly blue belts. I pray that they would lead and we'd be humble enough to receive their instruction. We pray for the protection of our leadership. We pray for Darren, Jeff, the speaking team, the elders, that you'd protect them. So, Lord, help us to worship right now, resting in the fact that we're dearly loved. But at the same time, introspection is good and let us embrace it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.